Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the J3U Podcast. Your host, John Jewett. With me is Luke Miller. Today, we are joined by with Nick Gloff. Um, he is the owner and coach of Team Gloff and a brain when it comes to hypertrophy training, exercise execution, all things physique related. Want to have him on the podcast to talk about why it's so important managing fatigue in a contest prep setting and how this is a real aspect to one, making your process enjoyable, but actually truly achieving successful prep that leads to a contest stage lean physique. And uh, Nick's going to take us to today through his kind of own process of um, hangups that happened in past preps, how that's been resolved and, and now currently in a, in a prep process. So Nick, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Great to be here, guys. I appreciate the invite. Yeah. So you're currently now you're 18 weeks out. Is that up to date? Yep. 18 weeks and four days from the first one. I guess we should mention like Luke is also coaching you. So that's uh, been part of this whole process now. So when did this, uh, this prep start up? What was it? It was what, it was, 33, 35 weeks out ish, 35 ish. Cause we were yeah. kind of running a two part prep. So mm-hmm. Nick kind of got up to around that 285 ish mark. And we knew contest shape was probably pretty close to 220 to 224. Yep. So that's a pretty good clip. Um, so stage one of prep diet break stage two of prep kind of a setup mm-hmm. yeah was that was that y'all think that was getting up to like a suboptimal weight nick oh, absolutely absolutely <laughs> <laughs> that's not even a question <laughs> having uh, 60 well, pounds to take i was gonna let you say not me <laughs> yeah no no i can't defend that whatsoever <laughs> uh, what, uh, what happened there was that just life happened or just chasing chasing strength because you know you get strong with uh um it's a couple different things it was partially chasing strength and trying to bring my numbers up as much as i could to try and make the progress i wanted to make which honestly even though it was too far of a push to go that far i made i mean up to now like taking pictures from where i am at this distance out to this show as from the last year and the year before completely different physique at this point absolutely and so did it not work? I mean, I'd have to say that it has, it really did the job. It really put on a lot, especially on the places that I really needed it. Like I was very, I was decent at a fair couple of poses, but I had big holes on major ones that like really needed to be filled. Like lats were definitely not there anywhere close to what they needed to be. Legs were pretty decent, but as I got leaner on the last preps uh, from the front, I got a bit more slight. And so that wasn't ideal. Um, chest didn't really show itself very well on my front shots, specifically the front double and front relaxed. And then from the sides, I didn't have the arms and the delts to be able to really hold water. And so at this point, I don't really have those same holes in my physique. The lats are the biggest thing that lag still. But even that, I think once all of this process is over with, we're going to see that that's made drastic improvements. So did it work? Yes. Did it come at a huge cost? Yes. Because yeah. going up this far and having to do a 35-week prep, 
obviously is not ideal, <laughs> would not be recommended. But the way we ended up getting here, I, I know you're trying to hop in. No, John. no, I'm, just, I'm ready. I'm like, let's go. Now go ahead. Yeah. But what really happened there, it wasn't just me trying to push it and push it and push it. That was part of it, but that was more of a, what can I make out of this situation that I'm already currently in type of a scenario where I was already pretty far pushed in body composition by the time that I could really initiate a true off-season push and get things together again. Because after the last prep that ended up crashing, I had three, four months of unbreakable water retention that no matter how much time I took away from the gym, no matter how much activity I did or did not do, no matter what I did with supplementation, actually like health supplementation, super dosing things that would help with water regulation, um, trying to keep stress levels down as much as I possibly could, pulling out PEDs entirely for a period, keeping it on TRT for a good period, like no matter what was done. And then same thing with food manipulations. I just couldn't break the water that I was carrying. And after the last prep I put on in like a span of like three week period, I put on over 30 pounds of water that never came off. Yeah. And that's kind of where you came to me, right? It's like 2,500 calories a day, 25 plus pounds of fluid. And it's like the only direction you can go at that point is up. Yeah. There was no way for us to try and pull it back for me to get into a better place because it was a stress management issue that went so deep internally that it created the problem itself. And so for where I landed, that was really my only option was to continue to try and push upwards and try to just get what I could out of where I was. And so when I did come and join Luke, because I was at the point that I was like, dude, I can manage this myself, but I've already done enough of a number and I'd rather not have to think about it. And if somebody else tells me to do less, I'm more likely to listen to it than if I try to tell myself to do less because I probably won't listen to myself for very long. So he changed things up pretty significantly so that I could drop enough fatigue that I could start making better progressions in the directions that we decided to go. So that was really, long story short, I just had to make the best out of the situation I landed in after being in such a suboptimal spot to do really anything with my physique, with any great control. So I just put in the time, put in the training, kept eating enough food that was going to allow me to feel good enough for my performances and training and just continue that for as long as I could up until or about the timeline came up that we looked at. This is about a good spot is after that, after this point up to about 35 weeks out where we started the prep got to about there and was like, if we're going to prep, now is going to have to be the time to start moving. And by then the water retention issues had pretty much regulated them themselves. And so that was the better idea than doing anything else. I was going to have to diet regardless. So here we go. Yeah. You laid out a lot there. So I do want to rewind that back. So people have some, some context to the first prep and because we're talking about like fatigue management and why that kind of will lead you to a stalemate within prep or actually seeing it out. And I think what people need to know about Nick, if you don't know Nick, (laughs) Nick is stupid strong. (laughs) And that's an understatement. But I mean, I think best of like 800 pound squat, like 700 pound front squat. Don't let me diminish you in any numbers here, Nick. I'm sure deadlift is somewhere in the sevens as well. Um, So you have someone that's the ability to challenge their body with a lot of systemic stress, 
which also requires a huge recovery capacity. So within a contest prep, recovery tools are diminishing while someone's still generating a lot of fatigue and to not be able to dissipate that fatigue in some way, it just accumulates to this point where you're basically overtrained in, in a prep scenario. So would you say looking, looking back, like entering into this prep, like what were the main like framework problems that was it within training or obviously you said recovery side. So maybe what specifically, so people have like the takeaway of um, the problems that we see. Okay. So the biggest issues that I've had uh, with that, the last prep and the one before it, which landed up going in the same way was first thing having to really push on food is something that I seem to have to do for me to start getting the momentum to go. Food has to drop pretty low. Activity has to come, come up fairly high from my normal baseline for me to start making progress. So that, as soon as it's initiated, starts pushing on the recovery abilities and having me really start to drain my resources early relative from what it would be in my normal surplus state, which I've spent the majority of all of my training career in. And so that already puts the limiter on that. And with that, having such a long period of time that I've adapted myself to being that high output athlete on the gym floor, it's all of those baselines that I created with the movements that I had been doing in both of those preps were way too high for me to sustain, but I didn't want to let them go. And so I kept on fighting to keep them. And it wasn't just, so it was exercise selection was a major thing, exercise stacking, frequency of big movements and then just how far I took each one of those big movements. And then I made the even further cardinal sin of as soon as they started to pull back and fall behind where I wanted them to be, I made them worse by turning them into rest pauses and 10 minute death sets and things like that. Like doing uh, where I couldn't get, and this is one that actually I remember pretty vividly from last year, um, things were starting to slip on me at a certain point, it was probably 13, 14 weeks out from the original planned show of last year. And my squatting numbers started to, to go on me. And so my stability was starting to change because my body was so different. It was a little bit hard for me to coordinate. I wasn't feeling like my knees and my ankles were taking it as well. So things were just a little off. And by then I didn't want to let it go any further than my six plate for eight to 12 but it inevitably did. And so I pushed it on to, all right, I'll do it on a Smith. Okay. Um, let's do it on a front squat now so that I have something else to focus on other than just a back squat. So I can feel good about myself, even if it's not the weight that I wanted to do. <laughs> and then if I fail before I get to the rep target I wanted, which was always a ridiculous number, be like, all right, well, I'm just going to go until I can't move anymore. Yeah. It's a genius move. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with any of the things I actually know in my head to be the right thing to do. It was all entirely emotional attachment driven, which is something I think a lot of people are going to end up taking away, especially with early preps, is that there's a big emotional attachment, especially when you're a big athlete on the gym floor and you kind of identify with that part of it. It's difficult for you to step away from what you really know you can do in the optimal circumstances for you to perform and just completely ignore the fact that you're no longer in an optimal circumstance to perform at that level and trying to continue to do so only 
increases the pace of that feedback loop and pushes you further and further down up to the point that if you keep fighting it, it just only gets worse. So training was probably one of the bigger things that ended up pushing me into a hole initially, at least. So that was the trigger aside from already having my reserves for my recovery and performances dropping from just normal diet things, diet fatigue coming up that limiting performances, performance getting limited, me trying to bridge the gap with more output in other ways. And then due to all of those, everything else just got harder to do. And as everything else got harder to do, I just tried to make it happen as much as I could. Water started to accumulate just like it would on anybody to a more moderate degree on most other people that I've seen so far. But the response to that with the previous management that I was, that I had for all of the things in my prep was by that point where water started to accumulate, fatigue was getting higher, time was running shorter, and these issues were cropping up, it wasn't, okay, approach is pull back, enforce a pullback, make sure that things recover a baseline, and then move from there, try to get things moving properly again. It's, okay, now there's water present, we can't see visual changes, so what do we got to do? We're going to pull food harder, increase activity more, enforce the same amount or more total training days to try and increase the total caloric output so that fat will continue to come off even though we can't see it because of the water retention. And that was coupled also with trying to manage uh, water issues through AI deployment, through uh, CABER deployment, higher total drugs in the stack, increased amount of oral use, like all of the things that by that point, it's not just small cosmetic issues that turned into like the big water problem. It was furthering that really deeply entrenched systemic fatigue and overall bodily toxicity to the point where there was just a complete and utter breaking point yep. is what happened. And you mentioned too, Nick, like, talk about training nutrition and, and those aspects changing, but obviously there's, you, you mentioned managing stress and also I, I would bring up sleep. Like these are your big, your big bucket items, right? Because I know just talking separately to you, like there's been kind of ingrained uh, sleep routine. That's probably less than ideal for, yes. for prep. And I feel like a lot of times with people that even I'm coaching, everything's kind of looked at this separate bucket. Um, not how it's all integrated within one. It's like, Hey, sleep's off. Oh, good. Like how is training going to be today? It's like completely separate items, but it's like, Oh yeah, sleep's poor. Training's gonna, probably going to be poor today too. They're, they're integrated. So during those times were those issues and how, how are they issues? Uh, sleep issues have been something that I've had present since um, probably since like the end of high school for me. And so it's been six, seven years. Um, so through college, I kind of gained those, uh, you guys know this, the both of you do, but this is more for the people listening. It's something that happened out of uh, necessity for what I had to do to just make things work because I had to pay my way through college. Yeah, I had a night job, worked in a research lab uh, for biomechanics, had a double major, had a girlfriend, had dogs, had you know bills to pay, all the rest. And so I pretty much was the guy that would be up because I also maintained a almost perfect GPA from start to finish of college. And so I wasn't the guy that would just be like, oh, 
I mean, I'll take care of all the stuff that needs to pay the bills and then I'll worry about all the rest later. I might study for the last 10 minutes before my test tomorrow. It's like, no, I'm, I'm going to be up until the test tomorrow morning because I had no time for me to cover it this day. And so I'm going to be up for the next 14 hours studying this. And so my sleep issues ended up becoming very deeply ingrained just by me having a, well, honestly, this is kind of, this is apt to make this comparison at this point because it's the same thing that happened with the prep. It's like, it was a necessity to not let anything at all slip even a little bit. Gotcha. Yeah. But the one thing that slipped as a result of that was sleep. And that was consistent as the one that I had, I sacrificed for everything else to happen. And so uh, with the preps, that was still present, but it was no longer enforced by a necessity. It was more an ingrained habit. And because of the many years that I spent like that, my cortisol and you know normal circadian rhythm for alertness had been like pretty much shifted entirely in the opposite direction where i will be much more awake past 3 or 4 p.m and for the next 12 hours than i ever would be at the beginning of the day from 4 a.m until 4 p.m like that would be like so pretty much entirely flipped from what a normal person's circadian cycle is going to be like so that ended up causing issues just with the scheduling that had to make everything work. And then how I could actually get through, like that's, that's actually a point that we can make real quick too. So having that kind of a circadian rhythm normal for somebody isn't normal. And us being able to do a prep is predicated on the exact management of your time to be able to get in everything as it's needed to be. Yeah. Us having the distance between our morning cardio when we actually have to do it to separate things out for energy management purposes throughout the day. You have to do that in the morning, but you have nothing and you're drained entirely of any energy to do it. Quality of that suffers. Push your way through it. You end up feeling you have to take even longer time between then and your training sessions. Hit the training sessions, then you probably have more work that still needs to get done. You have to do that following. And then whatever else that has to happen in between or afterwards that ends up being, you know, back burner until you have the mental and physical capacity to do it. And then it perpetuates itself with an ever increasing fatigue cycle because you're pushing yourself to do things outside of the normal circadian rhythm that you've established. Where if you have those things already in place, that's not even a struggle that you manage to realize happen. Yeah. Which to kind of rope it back to training, right. And to start to connect dots for people like, a large portion of that time that we spent like going up to that 285 and then that kind of that transitionary period between contest prep um, was spent around that habit stacking of moving that sleep time as forward as we possibly could. Right. And um, that required a very drastic pull down on the, on the training in order to make that happen. Um, because like at, at this point in prep, like we communicate about training and you're managing it on your own yeah. where I'm kind of doing the nutrition stuff. But at the start, it was like, Hey man, like we've really got to scale back the total amount of training frequency and volume and, and what we're exposing ourselves to, to what we could probably argue was suboptimal from a progress standpoint Yeah, was a necessity in order to, to fix the problems. And so it's like looking at how integrated those things were. It required us doing that for two ish months, three ish months before yeah. We really start to see that happen so that we could actually go into a prep. Mm -hmm. I'm this, this is like definition of 
severely overtrained, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's not like, Hey, we'll do a deload week. That's not that state. This is like, this will be months of restoration to get everything back on track to, yep. to dig that deep. Right. It's not an overreach. It's uh, something that can go pretty far extreme, even w- within a prep though itself, it is like kind of this ever growing state of overreaching you sp- and you already need to be managing that to some extent, but um, you know, you mentioned a few points within that too. Uh, for one, the assessment of the state, because where's, I guess for people listening, like there is a balance point between, Hey, you are going to have to dig in prep some fatigues and accumulate, but there's also a point where it's going to really tip the scale. Um, but also you have to weigh out like what's water retention, what's is, you know, adherence to a plan. Cause you question that with a lot of people that are, that are your training and you're probably questioning that too. You know, Nick's not sticking the plan cause you're not dropping and I'm pushing you. That's just the math doesn't make sense. But then if you had, are at a higher enough body fat state and you're retaining water, you might not see it. It might be hard to analyze it. So did you feel like there was some takeaways for, for yourself and assessing um, clients now, or even for yourself, like water versus fat and, and pulling back? Like where, where is the balance within that? I've actually, in the last year, I've actually gotten uh, one specific client comes to mind for me. Um, and I won't mention him specifically, but actually, John, you know who it is. Because uh, I've talked to you back and forth a little bit with some management things with him is a fairly similar issue that happened with him that happened with me is where he was pretty okay uh, up through his prep. Then nearing the end, things really started to not add up and make a lot of sense. But then even after that was done and the prep was finished, it was an uncontrollable amount of water gain. And I could tell that it was water gain because of other things that we had uncovered later points where it wasn't. And at this point, I think for, for severe water retention, there is a different actual visual look to it than fat in most people. So once it starts to get to an overwhelming amount of water, there's a discoloration to the skin. There's a little bit of a rosacea, like kind of everywhere. You start to notice like different uh, patterns in like the skin on like the lower legs, especially start to get white patches, like little things like that start to show up. And if there's specifically, if there's like blood flow issues, which I have seen, which is not my own problem, there is even more of a problem with discolorations and then changes in what the uh, vascularity looks like in certain areas, like things like that can make very major changes. What I've found, pull it back from his specific example, because I'll go I'll go in a direction we don't need to. Um, what I've noticed uh, with the assessments is one, yes, always looking at the adherence and what I know out of my own people. Like what can I expect out of them for what they actually can tolerate and being communicative enough with them on a frequent enough basis that it doesn't seem like there's going to be any miscommunications as far as that goes. Having a soft enough approach to be able to have a real conversation and have them comfortable with being able to say those things is one part of it, but there's always going to be the back of your mind that you're like, I don't know, is this, you never know for sure. You're never really going to know for sure until it's absolutely apparent. But when there's been way too many other consecutive things that fall, training starts to take dips, especially on the bigger movement patterns, or as the overall volume of smaller movements becomes undoable. 
That happens quite quickly when I see this. Then diet adherence or not, doesn't matter. Digestion issues start to come up. That becomes a bigger issue. Sleep starts to get more disturbed. And as the guys are bigger, it's even worse. And so as their body weight is starting to come up, it starts to get disproportionately bad very quickly. And a lot of times I, I would like to corroborate that with their partners or people that are close to them for just how bad that gets with like their actual ability to breathe while they're asleep. So those things don't uh, change all that quickly if you're gaining fat or if you're gaining muscle tissue, those are longer term issues. If you start having those issues very, very quickly where they weren't present before, I start to suspect it's more of a water issue if I'm seeing those kinds of gains visually as well. That and then a general disliking of what they're doing based off of their performances and their training because they just can't sustain it anymore. So overall general over fatigue syndromes start to pop their way up. And that is what I look at for the assessments where it's not just I'm looking at a visual. I can't just look at a visual because I was there myself. I could send in the perfect report for my own check-in and be like, I'm doing everything, literally everything. And this is going in the wrong direction. And I promise you, I am doing everything. <laughs> I think it's one of those things like on prep, if, if it's water and, and getting point to overreach, like you'll see you know, someone's feeling worse and the response isn't there, but if someone's feeling amazing and training's moving along, great. Like all my numbers are progressing, yep. but they're not moving. Well, it's probably like, maybe there's some adherence issues that are, that's there. Um, no, that, those are great takeaways. Cause I think that's a, usually if you, I think it's your type a like overworkers that you'll have to walk, watch out for that for yep. maybe not the majority, but I think with the clientele that we pull in, we pull in a lot of those individuals. Yep. Um, Luke, I want to, I want to throw it to you because you saw this all from like being an outside perspective um, and dive into like the training piece. Like what were the, the big things that started changing from what Nick was doing then to the now leading into this prep? Cause I know y'all had to pull scale way back, but what, what is that like structure now? Yeah. So from a training perspective, a lot of it kind of started with restructuring how frequent we visit these major compound movements, um, especially like Gloff's like ability to hinge alongside squatting, right? It's like, we saw this large hole in back development, pretty consistently running some variation of a hinge or the squat pattern. And it's like, man, the capacity to fill in that volume cap with movements that are going to be a little bit more back specific was very low. So a lot of that was completely restructuring how we trained back, trained back and how often we visited these larger compound movements. So typically when we talk about it, like managing it, typically have three cups, a squat cup, a hinge cup, and a pressing cup. And you kind of have to balance the water between those from a program design standpoint to manage that. For most people, they can run two cups fairly full while the other one's a little bit more empty. From the performance metrics of a Gloth, it's like two of them need to be pretty close to rock bottom in order to manage the output of the other. So a lot of it came from spreading out that frequency of the major compounds. And Gloth can kind of attest to this as well. The feel versus real for Gloth within back training was largely skewed. Yes. So lat, lat pattern-based training was Terry's rear delt pattern training that he okay. thought was lat training. 
So it was almost like a complete strip back. Like, hey, like I need to take you below what you thought was baseline volume because we're not even doing things right right now. That kind of coincided with needing to pull back all that water retention, but which is why it was such an aggressive volume pool. But a lot of it was starting to align feel versus real. And this was where I was like, hey, I need to take over the programming strictly for just a bit until we get you to this point that this starts to align. And then now those same principles are there and the frequency of visiting compounds is very low um, from a performance standpoint. And obviously, Nick, like, you know, exercise execution like crazy. And I know you mentioned like the emotional drive of exercise selection was mainly what was carried out there. Um, do you think that just, you just had the blinders on to those aspects, like say around back training? Yeah. Um, I wouldn't, not quite as much for back training. I wouldn't say, I would say for, for that, I mean, Luke can attest because the, it was actually at the San Antonio seminar uh, for the three of us that we had figured this out because he pointed it out on a pull down that I was doing. He's like, I thought I was like, I'm doing, I'm doing this for lats, man. He's like, I don't think you are <laughs> like, just take, just do this. <laughs> like, Oh, okay. Gotcha. It's like, I can cue things all day long and I can see somebody else do it. But when I'm doing it myself, I already had the preset. Like he said, the feel versus real. So I was still doing all the same patterns really then before anything was taken over as to now it's just minus the big ones. And so it was just that my, over the years of me uh, reinforcing and reinforcing the patterns, I had gotten that feel versus real messed up to where the cues that I was implementing were targeted for the lat, but I wasn't feeling them the way that I was imposing them mentally to myself. Hmm. If that makes sense. So the cue wasn't putting him in the position he should be in, in order to drive tension where it needs to go. Same cue, same directionality to all of it, but it was just slightly misaligned enough because I had thought that I had it under control and I had it. But I mean, as you guys would know, doing things like I primarily would pull with my Terry's on a lap, uh, lap movement, like regardless, that was the way that I would recruit for that. Terry's, you can pretty much do exactly the same path and hit Terry's as you would lat. It's just a little bit of a different shoulder position. And very easily, it could just move from the position that would be targeted for the lat and just move right into Terry's and you wouldn't know unless you knew. Of which I wasn't keeping my eyes open to the, the fact that that was happening. I was more so like, all right, well, I got to get to a six and a half plate bent over row now. And <laughs> maybe that will give me my back. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's interesting. It's like when I got into bodybuilding, coming from powerlifting and doing like DC training, you would hear Dante saying, this isn't exact his interpretation. This was mine was that I need to get as strong as possible on these movements. And that's going to translate to a bigger back and to extent it, it does. Um, however, uh, if, if you're all your patterns are kind of like in this one plane, you might have some missing gaps in it. Um, and it could take away volume from those gaps where you need it, which is yes. what we were seeing. Right. Um, so Y'all revamped exercise selection, more catering into where volume needed to be allocated, got sleep relatively improved in order to initiate like the start of this prep. So now the starting point, everything's in place, but is there still like, and whoever wants the answer, because initially you needed a big pull of food and, and up of expenditure to get the ball rolling. So that comes with also 
is it, does it come with a big reduction in training volume to manage that recovery aspect or how, how'd y'all do that this time? Um, initially we didn't really have to, because I was already working off of a lower baseline of work okay. than what was normal for me. And so since that point that we started, I've been able to take a slight escalating in training. And then it started to taper back down off again now. And so I had a good period of time where I was coming from the very like rock bottom lowest where Luke even said for both of us sitting where we were at with the programming originally when I handed it to him so that he could tell me to chill out. When he did that, my work totals were like so low that I couldn't even imagine that I was really doing anything other than getting the, the movements in, rewiring some things specifically on back training, and then getting used to not being in the habit of showing up for a monstrous movement every day was like the biggest thing that was changed. And then the overall volume of everything done was dropped. And then once all those things started to get established easier, it's not as much of a mental emotional association with the sessions and the way that I did them. And my fatigue started to like baseline itself a little bit more as regards to training. Then I could start bringing things up, started pulling it up little piece by piece, set by set across like other halves of my rotation for little accessory work adding in just a little bit more stuff for lats specifically, keeping most of my other stuff like legs and pressing pretty much baseline and just continue to move it in that direction up until it was a couple weeks ago, two, two and a half, three weeks ago that I had to make a pullback, do a, a full deload so that I could reset things again because water was starting to come up from just having to push to keep the momentum rocking. And from there, it's been dropped a fair bit again back down to the baseline that we had established as what I could manage when I was kind of at the worst point prior. Yeah. And the only difference between then and now is one, the frequency of overall sessions. Cause my leg sessions back then had been dropped to one time per rotation. That's now back up to two. So that is changed. Pretty much all the rest is the same. And then overall volume of the bigger patterns is still just as low as it was. Yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, a part of that had been gained with, you know, compound inclusion as well, because we saw compounds kind of fluctuate up and down throughout these different phases. Um, but I think one of the big things, too, that we saw, and, and, and Glock can kind of touch on this, is we ran a completely different deload structure than he, than he has in the past with that previous deload, like performance capacity that's at a sky high ceiling has to match with a deload that's going to be a sky high deload. And so the, the deload rather than the stereotypical, like, okay, let's pull back 30% of volume, just one to two RIR, like you can kind of keep training along and be fine. That's not going to fly with Gloff. Right. And so it was almost, it was a large spread out of frequency with almost full removal from the gym in order to kind of be able to get that, to drive that adaptation we wanted. Yep. It was a full six days without any training and then working my way back in with the dropped baseline of overall work to start from rock bottom and pretty much. So we could say it this way. It was a two week deload with six yeah, days. I didn't train <laughs> is what it was. Yeah. That's you, do, you, do you think there's looking at that? Do you think there's another strategy to meet to where it's not like from up, the ceiling down to the floor like is there a middle ground to find there yes yeah the overall total of work uh the escalation on the last time went a little bit too far i think 
And that was obviously that was due to me trying to add things in to find where the ceiling was while we still had time to be able to. So yeah. now, so now we have the data. I know exactly how far I can take it for relatively the amount of reserve that I have to work with. And so now we know I don't have to take it that far again. And I think I'm pretty much hit where I need to be with the balance point. And I know now and what I'm going to be planning to do, and this is the first time Luke's hearing it, but I'm going to start once things start to get a little bit heavier on me with the fatigue, going to start removing the big pattern from every other leg session that I have and just replacing that with the, an analogous pattern that's going to hit the same muscle tissue. That's just a slight different variation to it so that it's not going to take quite as much of me systemically to do it, but I still have the patterns in place over the broader spectrum of time so that I don't lose it. I still have it in. I don't get into the habit of not having it in, but it's not going to hit me quite as hard. And that's going to be one of the major things as well as keeping a cap on the overall accessory work that I do. Because the overall amount of accessory work that I do at this point is probably a little bit higher than it is going to need to be by the end. And so that'll be something that'll stay a little bit lower than it was just prior to now. Were you doing the structure at all back then? Cause it sounded like you just kept grinding the whole time. Like, would you ever deload in prep that? Yeah. yeah. That, that past prep that was getting suboptimal. Like you tried deload. It just wasn't even close or yeah. you're already just too far gone. Um, tried to deload. Didn't really help by the time that the deload had to be up because of time for actually getting to the, the show date. Is it, I was given an allotment of days. That was up, nothing I could do about it. Hop right in, continue on forward. So now you kind of have a framework. Was were, was this kind of pre-planned? Like, hey, we're gonna go, obviously it's auto-regulated, but at the same time, you probably had some rough idea of like five weeks in, we're probably gonna need a deload. Is there like a rotation now that's kind of planned in place or is it just purely auto-regulated? Auto-regulated now. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of where the two-stage prep came from, right? Because we know Nick is going to be at some point where it's like, we got to take a pretty large step back, mm -hmm. right? So that, that diet break kind of coinciding with the pullback on the training and then being able to take it again. So how many weeks was that, that you were able to go with training? Like from the start of prep to, the, to now, is that? Yeah, so 35, 35 to 21 right two weeks uh, oh no uh from lat yeah yes to 21 so 14 13 yeah good period of time wasn't overly pushed but within like i wasn't there like what four weeks in there where volume was still back down to like rock mm -hmm. bottom right so this was like bottom yeah. pre-prep kind of maintenance phase in a sense you know like a maintenance volume and then moving up as prep and escalating to this point of needing the deload right Yes. Yep. Do you so think there's something to be said for like pre-prep maintenance training phases? I would say depending on the, the person that you're working with, it's like whether or not somebody can actually take their training to the level that they're going to need that kind of a pullback at some point. Mm -hmm. So that's a big question to ask. I mean, uh, Luke yeah. keeps on saying, uh, referring to me as a GLOF or the GLOF. <laughs> for my title and to separately categorize myself <laughs> somebody other than a normal person that he would prep um and i don't want to pat myself on the back for it because it ends up being my biggest detriment it's the ability to bring my training to the point 
that it is such a ginormous double-edged sword and I'm just lopping off limbs if I keep going is what it ends up really end ending up being. And so it's not a good thing that I can take it quite that far by that point. And I don't know how many other people really take it quite as far as I would or have the ability to. Sure. But for somebody that we have, at least within their own relative standards, the ability to push and push and push and drag it that far, then yeah, I would say that pre-prep maintenance period is going to be a good thing to do, especially having a deload just prior. So you already know that if somebody's going to be more, and even if it's not training related, if somebody has a higher stress environment in general for whatever other you know buckets like are getting poured into for their stress, I mean, they're going to need it at some point. If they're already starting overly fatigued prior to the prep, because of any of those reasons, they're going to need to step it back at some point. You should have them on a clean slate before they go. So, yeah, I think the, the, probably the level of it that needs to play. Cause I, I hear like coaches that speak on, you know, maintenance phases or I call them holding phases or primer phases or whatever you want to want to call it. It just based around the needs of the individual, if it's training related, if it's PD related and you just need that time down for systemic stress or the actual psychological stress of just life in general. But at some point, I mean, moving, if you're like, you know, final week 40 of off season and then the following week is right in a prep, like you've yeah. accumulated a ton of just stress over this time duration to jump into a further state of stress that at some point there probably needs to be a pullback yeah. to some level for the majority of people. Uh, you yes. know, I would say it's just varying what it's going to look like. You're kind of like, the weird anomaly, the, the gloff, the state yeah. of gloff, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, probably does need to happen. I think that's where we, you set up people to be in optimal preps. Um, we'll see people that come to you like, all right, coach, hire me. I'm, I'm like, I'm ready to prep. Let's start. It's like, where are you coming from? Cause yeah. you might need some weeks with me before we even jump into that, that point. Right. And I think from a training perspective, like that looked probably like a four week to five week transition of training where the actual contest prep transition was probably around seven to eight weeks. So, you know, it took quite a bit to be able to pull that back to a clean slate. Yeah. Yeah. It took a, a good bit of time where there was still uh, outside of the actual deload and really pulling it back, having everything at a low enough baseline that things could continuously improve was a fairly long period of that because mm. that was still very deeply entrenched. And so as you said earlier, John, it, it was more of a full overtraining issue, yeah. like all the way down to like the actual definition of it, like overtrained, like actually in, in a ditch, yep. overtrained. It wasn't just snap the fingers, do a deload, we're good. It was do the deload, take the full step back, reset things, then try to keep things as low as possible so that everything could finally normalize with the due time it needed to do it. Was there anything else loop training wise that you wanted to touch on that that's been done differently or, or to take away? I think a large portion was cardiovascular activity. Cause I remember because Glof and I were friends during his last prep, even though someone else was managing it. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Glof, but you were doing hit sessions a couple times a week alongside steady state, correct? Uh, yeah, uh, there was at a point in the prep where I was doing 90 minutes of cardio a day and 30 minutes of that were one minute on one minute off maximum bike sprints. Yeah. So from an activity standpoint, we've kind of gone towards the step count 
steady state management to kind of manage that need for output um, and trying to, to get that because Glauf, I love you, but your step count when I came to me, was like 2K. <laughs> and so it's like, man, like just move <laughs> and you'll get moving, right? So um, it's like, I'll murder cardio, but I'm going to lay here the rest of the day. <laughs> right? Yeah. So a little bit of a better manage of the balance of that side of the equation that, that can translate into training. And one that we literally just actually changed kind of talking back and forth with each other before we have the podcast is when the cardio sessions are being done. So um, for Gloff, like the, the leg day training sequence is rather large. And so we're kind of transitioning into um, no cardio on the day after leg day, a shortened cardio session on leg training, and then a little bit of higher exposure to activity on the five days in between so that it's kind of regulating that stimulus that's kind of around leg training. Yep. That's smart. You hear a lot of people are like, they'll jump to just no cardio on leg day because obviously you're going to be training legs. But really, cardio sucks the worst the day after leg training. Like to do anything, you're even walking around. It's like, man, if you could just have that day off of cardio, it'd be so nice, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's what I said. <laughs> oh, duh, let's do that. Check in. Say, hey, um, it would be really great if I don't have to do cardio on the day after legs because it's like wringing out a towel that's got nothing left in it. And so like kind of rejig it, right? It's like the total amount of time is the same, but a shortened one on the leg day so that doesn't affect the training performance the zero on the day after for recovery capacity and just running a little bit of a higher threshold on the days in between. Mm -hmm. uh, modality wise, have you found a difference in past prep to this prep of getting the same, you know, pulled out of, out of your cardio versus like, but managing fatigue, bike, Stairmaster, elliptical. Oh. Like um, I only use either the stairs or the bike as cardio. And I really only dictate that by, if I'm going to use the stairs, it's because my quads are too wrecked for me to be able to do the bike very well. So I can use my glutes and hamstrings a little bit more on the stairs and it's not going to be as agonizing would be the only determinant that would make me do that. But primarily it's always the bike. And so it doesn't really seem to, I've done that for my last preps as well. The cardio modality, as far as like the actual machine I use has been the same. I always prefer bike, always have except for past 30 minutes, uh, my ass goes completely numb, just like most of you guys probably. So that's the, the biggest issue that I have with it. But um, no, I don't really see any difference with what I've done in the past and now with that. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I've, I've done preps with like the spin bike, same thing. Um, I guess to keep output high enough, I'm usually, there. there's like a metabolic stress there that starts digging in more fatigue. Um, but then like Stairmaster is nice because like you barely move on it. You have a high output. Um, but at the same time, the output for duration of time could yeah. be problematic as that would accumulate fatigue, right? Um, treadmill is nice, but at the same token of that, like you don't get a lot of output for the time duration. So I think there's a balance between them all to coming yeah. up with the lesser evil that gets yeah. the job done. Yeah. Right. I tend to like that to split most of the time. So if I'm going to have, I mean, we're at 50 minutes of cardio, six days a week now is the uh, prescribed. And so if I'm going to have that much to do, I'll typically do half of it 
or a little bit more than half on one or the other, depending on what is going to be easier for me that day. If I know I'm dragging, like you said, it takes a little bit more uh, for being on something that you have to move much more quickly to keep your output up. Keeping heart rate up on a bike after you've been doing bike for a really long time, you have to really push on it. Yeah. And so that can be really difficult as opposed to the stairs, where if you don't really use the stairs as often, I mean, and having a bigger body to move rather than being just sitting and moving a pedal, you can move a lot slower and get the same kind of heart rate output, make that easier on you. But doing it for the full duration would also kill you. Like, it's just ridiculous to try and do like almost an hour on the stairs all at once. I've done it. It's like, and you know, it's like going to war, right? Oh man. <laughs> oh, those are the hard, hardest preps I've had, but I, I've had some preps where I, even for some clients, I just change modality throughout the whole session. So start stairs, go elliptical, then finish the last in on the treadmill or a bike. And then you're like 15 minutes of cardio, all good. And it's like, oh yeah, 15 minutes more. And, but yeah. rather than like, oh, four, I'm going to be here for 45 minutes kind of helps at least the, the psychological ease, but you can push some high output first. And then as that heart rates up, it's kind of a little easier to hold it up there. I, yep. I found so, um, yep. no, in, interesting points on, on cardio, but definitely for fatigue management, that probably I'm sure is upholding training performance more so too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, those are, those are great takeaways. Um, anything else that y'all want to want to cover Nick that we, that we didn't touch on. Is there anything that hops out to you, Luke, that we've discussed? I, I think just understanding there's a scale to this, right? Like there's a scale of how far back you have to pull back the frequency relative to your personal capacity to output. Um, and that, you know, some of the prescriptions we specifically say within the confines of this may not be the exact recommendation for yourself, but that, you know, that frequency landmark of how often the compounds are. If your performance threshold is lower, that frequency capacity might be a little higher. And so, you know, when we, when we talk about this, it's, it's understanding that we had to keep performance maintenance for tissue retention there, right? We have a couple variables from a compound perspective that are going to help that. But what, what we need to understand is like, where can we keep someone for a long time during prep, that's going to be able to retain tissue and retain performance. And so there's a kind of like we said with all of this, like there's a balance to strike with programming and, and that. And kind of like Gloss said, the early portions of prep, because we were at such a rock bottom, we were able to come up a bit. But now moving forward, it's always going to be on this downtrend of like volume coming down, possibly frequency coming back. As, as Gloff had mentioned with kind of pulling one of the compounds all in an effort to, to keep the stimulus when the stimulus is provided is still high enough to retain tissue, but the frequency at which that stimulus is provided is not driving them into far of a hole to keep progress from coming. Um, because at the end of the day, fat loss is the priority here. Um, and we need to make yeah. sure that happens. Yeah. And that can't happen if everything is going off the rails because there's such a ridiculous fatigue state that it just cannot be maintained at the output level that's needed for it. Yeah. And so uh, actually, John, you made a point earlier on that we never actually touched on um, the success and enjoyment of the prep. So you can land in successfully because yeah. that second part kind of matters. <laughs> <laughs> so the success and the enjoyment to get actually to the end goal is 
probably one of the more guiding principles of what we're doing at the moment. Yeah. Having to, in going through the last two preps that I did, that went total crash and burn, horrible for me. And having to deal with huge aftermaths afterwards, I can say that the enjoyment part was something that was so pushed off just by having to go through the suffer and the suffer and the suffer to make it happen. That that is something that I know is a feeling and I can probably relate to a lot of other people with this, that that ended up turning into a crash and burn situation. It didn't need to be because that was just the way that it was push into it. Doesn't matter if you enjoy it, it's going to be hard. You're going to suffer, just suffer and suffer and suffer. And so it got beat into me for that. Like, no, that that's just what, that's what you're going to do because you already decided this is what's going to happen. It's going to happen. Whether you like it or not, you're going to drag yourself by the ear all the way there. And so having that as the previous experiences, following the, following the path towards the enjoyment piece of this so that I can actually continue to make progress and not have the crash and burn is going to be one of the bigger things that has to stay in place for this to work. The suffer is going to come and it's going to have to come because we plan on being completely inside out. Hopefully you can see my kidneys from you know the third row by the end, by the time this is done. But to get there, it shouldn't be from 20 weeks out that you feel like you're going to keel over and die at any moment. And so yeah. I think we can, for certain individuals, we can get sold into prep on being masochists and we will win based on that ideology of a prep because, Hey, we can outwork people. There we go. That's something that I can win at. And it just takes you to a very, very negative place. And the worse it feels, the better I must be doing. Um, like I would take pride in preps being like, hell yeah, Steermaster level 10 per hour. I'm going to, you know, no one else is going to be able to handle this. And I'll, that's what'll get me the edge. Like those are the preps where I also like look, look some of the worst, you know? Um, now my preps, I, I, I feel pretty good most of the time and uh, it's more enjoyable. And I think that's the point, Nick, is like, we're, we're going to be bodybuilding for like the next 10 years in that moment of like absolute terror or suffer. It's like, can you imagine doing this for 10 more years? Like, fuck no. And imagine <laughs> coaching some like new competitor. Right. And you, you sell them on this, like, this is going to be the worst experience. I'm putting you in POW camp. Let's go. And you're like, I'm never doing this again. And their no. prep isn't successful and they don't see those like positive outcomes on stage and, and you lose people that way. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of good takeaways and trying to make the process more bearable, even enjoyable at times, um, to where even if the outcome's not there, it's like, man, I just, I gained so much other value from like self-development in throughout all this. But I think that's like the, the real deep takeaway, but, um, even within this, I think linking all the pieces together, training recovery, it all matters to get down to that ultimate goal of, of being stage lean. And that's why I wanted to have you on and really cover it. And, for anyone that is listening, that uh, we will be going, all going to BodyCon, which will be an event that's happening August 20th, August 21st. Um, we'll all be there. So we'll Callum Raystrick, that who was just on the podcast, also Ross Byron with uh, Pro Coach. Um, so we'll all be speaking. This is one of the topics that Nick's uh, excellent at for regarding training, doing lectures on this. So y'all can all come out and see us lecture for those two days. And when it is the, pro I don't know, by the time we post this, 
we might have some promotion items up, but of course we'll post them all for everybody to, to get linked in on that. For sure. But anyway, Nick, appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you. Always appreciate it. Always a good time talking to you, John. Um, anything you want to plug for where people can, I don't know if you're taking current athletes or people want to follow you along. Yeah, uh, I am taking current athletes and I didn't forget about you, Luke. It's always a pleasure to talk to you too. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Not leaving you out, <laughs> but you can find everything that I do from the central hub. Uh, that is my Instagram that connects you to everything. I have a YouTube channel. That's just my name, Nick Loff on YouTube. And then you can find everything to get in touch with me for any and all of the services that I provide at teamgloff.com, which you can also find through Instagram at my link tree. So everything is there. If you can find me there, you'll find everything. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And everybody, thank you for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time.